Good morning and welcome to the Home Show here on News Talk. I'm Sinead Ryan. On the show this morning, we'll be taking a tour of Ireland's spookiest places. We'll hear why ceramics continues to be a thriving art form, a breakdown of the new mortgage rules and how they affect you, and optimised designs. Denise O'Connor will be showing us how to make the most of a small space. If you'd like to get in touch with the show today, you can text us here at 53106 for 30 cent. You can email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com and you'll find me over on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. And you can listen live or listen back to the show on our podcasts on the News Talk website or the News Talk app, which is powered by Go Loud. Now, you're very welcome along uh, this morning. That was some weather we had. <laughs> during the week and it uh, is certainly uh, darker nights and uh, colder evenings and of course that signals the start of Halloween. We were speaking about it briefly on the show last week and we got in a few uh, texts from listeners. Uh, I was saying that it just I it's not my thing and I just don't have a big thing for Halloween but of course my kids are gone now so if so maybe that's the reason uh, Angela says here's your sister Sinead Halloween is a non-event in my life Angela's a mom of four kids so uh, maybe they do something different uh, Hi Sinead says Michelle I've always hated Halloween even as a child it just feels sinister and evil and now it's just a money racket. I used to throw the children's scary masks under the stairs. Well, Michelle, you should stay tuned. In one moment, we are going to have a guest on who will scare you even more. And later on in the show, we have a fantastic chat with the CEO of the Hunt Museum in Limerick, who's going to be talking to us about a fantastic ceramics exhibition that is coming up. So do stay tuned for that. And for the moment, you're very welcome along to The Home Show. Well, now let's get right into that because, of course, it is the time of the year when ghosts and witches are about. And if you're intrigued by the paranormal, then you'll know that Ireland boasts some of the most famous haunted houses anywhere. So I'm delighted to be joined by Siobhan Bernlierat, CEO and founder of luxury travel design company Adams and Butler, who's going to tell us about some of the ghostliest places you can visit around Ireland this Halloween. Siobhan, you're very welcome along to The Home Show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be on. Now, how popular is the paranormal? I mean, is it like, is there a tourism hotspot of ghostly goings on around this time of year? Yes, people think about it uh, during Halloween, but like there's two fantastic festivals in Ireland now, Apuka and also in Derry, like in uh, Meath and in Derry. So people tend to think of those at Halloween, but people are always interested in ghost stories. Um, the funny thing is, if you look at websites of famous properties, castles and hotels, it's always the history that people go to the most. So they love to hear the stories about the old properties and the families that live there. Now, one of the best known spots in the country, I suppose the one that people think of immediately is the Hellfire Club. How did that get its name? Well, um, the Hellfire Club, there's, there's two stories about it. The first is uh, William Connolly, who used to be in the Irish House of Commons. And when he built his uh, hunting lodge there originally, he used old gravestones. So uh, things happened like the graves, and he used uh, one for the, the, the fireplace. And things happened like there was a storm and th- that stone blew off the fireplace. Another time the property went on fire, etc. And then a few years later, there was a man called Richard Parsons, who used to be into sort of devil worship 
morning and uh, he used to have meetings there and the idea that what, people would dress up as devils and stuff like that and they would do sort of rather evil things you know involving alcohol and sex and uh, they were also you know trying to encourage the the devil to join them and they would set aside a place for him at the table to join them so there's meant to be lots of going-ons in the Hellfire Club and surprisingly when you pass by it it's a beautiful place in the Dublin mountains but there is that eerie feeling mm. and they say that it's haunted Crikey Right Okay Well maybe that's one to steer clear of Now Leap Castle <laughs> which calls itself you know self-described as the most haunted uh, castle in Ireland There's an awful lot of castle feature on this list actually but there's a really creepy vibe in Leap Castle T- Tell me a little bit about it and, and what goes on there yeah, well, the, um, there's a lot of uh, sort of history in that property about a lot of bloodshed, um, you know, between brothers particularly. And locally, it's pronounced Lep Castle, so it has the two pronunciations for it. Um, but they say it's probably the most violent uh, history of any castle in Ireland or in, uh, even in the British Isles. So originally, it was built by the wealthy O'Bannon family. And I think that was, you know, around the 12th, 13th century, etc. And uh, they lived there. But uh, they couldn't decide who would inherit it. So um, the two brothers decided uh, they'd have a competition who could leap the furthest. And the idea being that the person who would win would inherit the castle. And that might also have been the only person who survived inherited the castle. <laughs> so that's why it was called O'Bannon's Leap because it was the O'Bannon family. And then after uh, they went away, the O'Carrolls uh, got the castle. And um, again, there was two brothers with no successor named. And uh, one of them uh, was a priest. And Tyg thought that he was the person who should inherit it. And Thaddeus was the priest. And whilst Thaddeus was saying mass, Tyg stabbed him to death. So the chapel there became known as the Bloody Chapel. And they also found a room like with hundreds of skeletons there. So there's been an awful lot of uh, troubled history between families uh, in that property. And then there's also the story in uh, Left Castle as well about the Red Lady, who can be seen wandering the castle uh, wearing a red dress, holding a knife. And they say, um, you know, she was held hostage by the O'Carroll family um, and she wanders, uh, the, you know, nightly around the castle, hoping to find the men who killed her child. So it has a very sinister history. Whenever we have ghost tours going around Ireland, it's the one place the guides are actually terrified of going into. The, the guides themselves, and these are people who specialise in the history of ghosts and spirits in Ireland. Um, so they, they say there's just such a bad feeling when you go into it. Wow. Like, you know, you, okay. the, the, the hairs go up in your arms and it's them as well, not just the, the clients who travel with them. Goodness. All right. Now, in terms of some of the other castles, we've Huntington Castle in Carlo. So that that's... Re- haunted by several ghosts. I mean, it's a busy place. And it is a busy place. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's actually a place you can stay in. So like, okay. it's, I think Carlow was probably one of the underappreciated counties in Ireland. It's a small little county, but it's very beautiful in its own right. So that is the granddaughter of the famous Grace O'Malley, the pirate queen, Ailish O'Flaherty, uh, lived there. And she married into the family who owned the castle, who were the Esmonds. And uh, the story goes that uh, she waits at the spy bush, which is sort of in a walk outside the castle, um, looking to the west. Uh, forlornly for her husband to return. Um, they also have ghosts of other soldiers there who were in, like Esmond's soldiers who were actually garrisoned there, uh, Bishop Leslie of Limerick, uh, Barbara St. Ledger, and monks from the 14th century abbey. Um, and then in the, if you actually go to visit the property, and you can stay there for a weekend or whatever, and it's run by a lovely man called, owned and run by a lovely man called Alex and his wife. Um, but they also have in the basement a temple to the divine feminine. So, you know, gods like Isis, etc., where the uh, 
ancient Celtic festival of sound is celebrated every Halloween. And that's actually very interesting to go and see. And that's the thing. There's so many places in Ireland that have this quirky, eccentric history and we don't always know about it, you know, and it's a shame. Indeed, yes. And I mean, it is certainly, it's kind of a, uh, I suppose, uh, one of those things that's niche, a niche market. But if we're good at it and we do this and we have so many ghostly hauntings, I suppose you can't blame people for, for wanting to come and visit and make something out of that. Now, while we're on places you can stay, I was surprised to see on the list one of um, the most luxurious five-star places that we have, which is the K-Club. There have been ghosts sighted in this most uh, beautiful of places. Well, the funny thing is my sister actually saw a ghost there. So my sister had five children, uh, lived in Dublin, never wanted to go far away because she had boys who were boisterous, wondering, you know, will something happen? Can I get home quickly? So she used to go away for weekends in local hotels and she stayed in the cake club one time. And she woke up at five o'clock in the morning and there was a woman, a cleaner, who she assumed was a cleaner, in her bedroom. And, uh, you know, my sister rather indignantly said, you know, it's five o'clock in the morning. What are you doing? Get out. And she said the lady looked at her and then left. And uh, then uh, I think it was two days later, she was checking out and they asked us reception. They said, oh, how, were, how was your stay? Did you enjoy it? And I said, oh, yes, it was lovely. And then she said, well, actually, um, there was a cleaner in my room at 5 a.m. in the morning. And she said she saw the two receptionists look at each other and she just knew by the glance they gave each other um, that they they thought and she thought it was a ghost. So that was fine. And Michael Davern, who was a GM at the time, I was having dinner with him and some of uh, my colleagues uh, from Adams Butler. And I said, and you're not going to believe this. My sister thinks there was a ghost here. And he answered, oh, really? And the way again, he said it, we all went, oh, no. <laughs> and apparently there was someone who worked for one of the families who owned the property. And I think they sold it or they left the property, but they didn't take her with them. But he said there was a ghost there in a particular room and, you know, people would see it. So then one day um, he was in the lobby and this gentleman asked to see the general manager of the hotel. And he said, have you any unexplained happenings or appearances that ever happened in the hotel? So, and, you know, Michael was saying that he, he sort of reluctantly um you know, said, well, actually, you know, you know, maybe some people have said they've seen something. So he brought uh, the gentleman to a room, but not to the exact room, to the one next door. And the gentleman said, no, it's not this room, it's the one next door. So then he asked to be left in the room. Uh, you know, they, the GM kept an eye on him and uh, he saw him in the garden, you know, talking to himself. And, you know, he just said to the, his team, he said, you know, let me know, you know, when he's finished or whatever. So then the gentleman uh, called for the GM and he said, you shouldn't have any problems now. He said, I released the spirit. And um, Michael at the time said to me, to this day, they hadn't seen the ghost since. I see. My goodness. So not all ghosts are evil. So don't worry about <laughs> staying in Irish hotels. It's fine. <laughs> they just need to be released. Siobhan, where would you not stay? Anywhere that you've gone that you thought, I just can't be doing with this. It's too freaky. I wouldn't go to Lab Castle myself. So that's the, the only place I, th I think everywhere else is fine. There's a lovely property up in Northern Ireland, Ballygally Castle in the Antrim coast. And yeah. it's a small turreted little castle. Um, and it's sort of like you'd imagine Agatha Christie staying there because it's actually looking over the beach. But uh, they had a, a lady there, Lady Isabella, uh, who had a daughter and her husband was very annoyed that she hadn't given birth to a son. So he locked her up and took the baby away and she fell to her death. They don't know whether she was pushed by the husband, whether she jumped to her death, was trying to escape. They don't know. But they do have... Uh, her ghost haunting the property and now she's never done anything malicious and there's a presence there people have seen they said a green mist and the BBC have gone there four times with different sort of like ghost mm. buster hunters or whatever <laughs> and uh, they felt a presence so I think that's one that like I do include um, and I think that's the type of you know 
property and ghost experience that I would put put up with and I would enjoy. But anything that's sort of sinister, or evil, you know, I wouldn't. You'd steer clear of. All right. Well, yeah. so say all of us, although I'm sure, as you say, there's a market for that. Siobhan Byrne-Lirat, CEO and founder of luxury travel company Adams & Butler. Thanks a million for bringing us all that on the home show this morning. And if any of you out there have had your own ghostly experiences or maybe you've stayed in Lep Castle or one of the other properties, do let us know and see if anything happened to you. Siobhan, thanks a million for joining us on the show today. Take care. Now still to come on The Home Show after the break, we'll be getting a roundup of the new mortgage lending rules, which were announced during the week uh, and a fascinating uh, ceramics exhibition that is coming up in Limerick. So do stay tuned after that and we'll be back in a few moments. And you're very welcome back to The Home Show here on News Talk. I'm Sinead Ryan. Now, before the break, we were uh, hearing about all of the spooky and ghostly places in Ireland. And I must say, some of them uh, aren't for the faint-hearted. If you have any of your own ghostly experiences or you'd like to tell us about places that you would or wouldn't stay, uh, do get in touch with us, 53106 for 30 cent, or email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. Now, during the week, uh, the central bank announced new lending limits for mortgage borrowers. So we thought we'd break down what's happened and what you need to know when it comes to purchasing a property. So joining me now is Joey Sheehan, also known as the Mortgage Coach. Joey, very welcome along to the home show. Hi, Sinead. Thanks for having me on the show. No bother. Let's go through, first of all, what's happened for the different characters. This is kind of like a long-awaited tweak to the mortgage lending rules. Isn't that right? Yes. Well, what happened during the week was that the central bank increased the amount a first-time buyer can borrow from three and a half times to four times. Yeah. So effectively, let's just take an example. If a couple is earning 80000 a year, uh, last week they could borrow three and a half times, which would be 280000 of a loan amount. Right. Now, uh, well, from the 1st of January, it'll be 320000 So it'll enable them to borrow a further roughly 40000 Now, that only applied to first-time buyers, as you say, because second and subsequent buyers are still stuck with the 3.5 times income. Isn't that right? Yeah, so it's still three and a half times for second-time buyers. So this is to give, you know, an advantage to the first-time buyer over a second-time buyer to try and get on the property ladder. However, what they have done for the second-time buyer is that before last week, they had to have 20% deposit Mm. to uh, buy a new property. That was reduced to 10%. So in an example of, you know, a a second-time buyer selling their house for 300,000, buying a new house for, let's say, 500,000, Last week, they had to have 100,000 plus costs. So we say 105, 10,000. Now they need 50,000 plus costs. So 55, 60,000. So that is a game changer for second time buyers. And you had a lot of second time buyers that, you know, were stuck in their house. They couldn't build up to 20%. Mm. There's a huge difference between 50 or 60 grand and 100, 110,000. So that will bring um, a lot of buyers, second time buyers, into the net. Now, the, the benefit of that, actually, Sinead, I think as well is that. These people trading up, if they're selling a house for three or 350000 and buying another house for, we'll say, 500000 the majority of these second-time buyers will sell their existing property. This means, you know, there should be an increase in supply, which ultimately could be available for first-time buyers. OK, all right. And I, and I can see how that would work. The logic of that is that they can move on, trade up, trade on and, and free up these kind of... The only thing is, though, Joey, like a lot of the additional grants that apply, like the, the uh, Help to Buy scheme and the Shared Equity scheme, they don't apply to second-hand houses. So if you have a first-time buyer buying one of those freed up three beds, they're not going to get any of that stuff, are they? 
No, so for the help to buy scheme, and which is hugely successful, where a first-time buyer can get tax back of up to 30000 uh, on the purchase of a newly built house or if they're building their own house, that applies only to new developments. Mm. In addition, uh, the new first home scheme, which is only coming into effect now, really, um, is available for a further 20% uh, on new built houses also. Yeah. So I, I just did a little example here, um, Sinead. If you have a couple earning €75,000, uh, and let's just say they've got a €40,000 deposit, as of this week, well, effective from the 1st of January, they'll be able to borrow four times seventy five, which would be a loan amount of 300000 they could receive up to 30000 in the revenue held to buy scheme. They can receive a further 20% under the first home scheme where the government effectively hold a 20% uh, equity share in their home. Mm. This means that this couple could purchase a property for in the region of 425000 So mm. between the increase in the income multiple coupled with the revenue held to buy scheme and the first home scheme, it is bringing you know, the average couple into being able to purchase a fairly decent property. Now, I suppose the benefit of that, Sinead, is that if there's more people able to afford houses at, in this example, 425,000, if I'm a developer and I'm looking at the viability of, of developing a property uh, you know, to, to create housing units, and if there's more buyers available, it makes that development more viable. Does it, so, does it just mean, though, Joey, like in reality, that developers will eye that top line and say to themselves, do you know what, we'll just jack up the price by 10, 15 percent because we know we can? I, I don't think so. I, th- I think that they could increase prices a bit, Sinead, but I think it's more to make the development viable rather than you know to be profiteering from it. Because I, I know I've spoken to some developers and you know I've heard of sites falling through that when they're looking at the cost of build, the cost of labour, um, you know, the uncertainty around energy prices, mm. um, the, the, the uncertainty of what will prices be next year when they're coming to market or the year after selling properties. So a lot of them are hesitant to, to get involved in new developments right now. Obviously, the cost of credit has increased significantly as well mm. for, for private developers. Well, well, let's so, talk about that for a second, Joey, because actually there's no guarantee just by the central bank making these changes that the retail banks themselves are going to suddenly allow everybody to borrow four times income. I mean, there is that whole piece about stress testing because of increased interest rates. I mean, 2% is the normal stress test, but actually maybe they need to revisit that now. Uh, and just because you can doesn't mean you can march into your bank and say, can I have four times my income, please? Because, because they might turn around and say, actually, this isn't a good bet. We don't want you overly indebted and using up all of your spare disposable income to service this mortgage. That's 100% correct, Sinead. So basically, if I'm a first-time buyer, I can, I'm eligible to borrow up to four times my income. However, I must still meet each bank's um, own credit criteria and underwriting requirements. So, you know, um, in the background, the cost of living, the net disposable income required for, for um, a couple or an individual, the bank of these metrics being calculated in the background of their calculators. In addition, interest rates have increased and the banks be stress testing at a higher rate. So all of those um, tests would need to be done on every application individually. Indeed. So while, while you know, every first-time buyer is eligible for up to four times income, it's not, no a, it's not a right, yeah. you know, you, you can't just go in and demand it. And and then I heard uh, in, in Gabriel McLoof, the governor of the central bank, in his statement, he was asked, is this going to be inflationary? Is it just going to serve the purpose? I mean, it's not 
doing a single thing to solve the supply issue, the underlying problem we actually have. Uh, and he admitted that, yes, it would probably lead to an increase in house prices in the short term. What would you recommend, Joey, say for somebody who is making an application at the moment or maybe part way through their application and realising, oh, hey, I could actually borrow more now. I could go for a better house. Would you be suggesting and recommending that they revisit that application in the light of this? Yeah, well, I would urge every, and I'd always say this, every first-time buyer, anybody looking to buy a property, as soon as you're you're ready, and you know that's what we do with my mortgages, we advise people how to prepare so that the application process and the approval process is as seamless as possible. So once you're ready to apply, I would urge everybody to apply. Have your approval there. If you can get four times, have the approval for four times. You mightn't end up borrowing four times, but have the maximum approval available because we don't know what property is going to come up and when. And your dream home around the corner from your mother or around the corner from where you grew up could come up at any point. Mm. And to have your approval ready ready and waiting. Just one key piece of advice, Sinead, as well, I'd like to sure. relate to all borrowers. And I think this is going to be the biggest source of declines over the coming years, because rates are increasing, proven repayment capacity is going to increase and people hoping to be successful for a mortgage need to increase their savings or their rent. So proven repayment capacity is a combination of the rent you currently pay and the savings that you make on a Mm. monthly basis. So with rates increasing, this is going to increase significantly. So roughly based on a 35-year term, which the average first-time buyer would be borrowing for, for every 100,000 they want to borrow, they need to be either paying rent or saving about 600 a month. So as an example, if you have a couple that are paying 1800 a month in rent, this would service about 300000 of a loan amount. Okay. okay. If they want to borrow 400000 they would need to be showing about 2400 which would mean they would need to be saving about €600 a month on top of their rent. If they're not paying any rent and they're living at home with family, then they need to show savings of about 2400 a month in order to borrow 400000 Right. So that's still, that's still a significant ask of people. Um, the big winners here, Sinead, are people who are separated or divorced. Not that they're separated or divorced, but because the, they're now classed as first-time buyers, which means that they can borrow up to four times their income, as well as being able to borrow 90% to purchase um, a second, a second home. So we see many examples where couples are effectively separated or even divorced, and they continue living in the same house because financially they cannot afford. So even at a 300,000 purchase price if they're trying to buy you know, a second home for, for the husband or the wife, they would have needed 60,000 plus cost uh, to, to buy that. Now it's only 30,000 mm. plus cost. So it's much more realistic and there's going to be much more people in the separated divorce. And this also applies to people who were previously insolvent or bankrupt. It's going to make it much more viable. So it will help in that scenario. Uh, Joey Sheehan, author of The Mortgage Coach. Thanks a million for joining us on The Home Show this morning. Now, the ceramics market is as popular as ever. People absolutely love having them, whether it's uh, as vases or sculpture or whatever. But how did we end up with these pieces in our home in the first place? And why are they important to our social history? Well, joining me to discuss this is Jill Cousins, director and CEO of the Hunt Museum in Limerick, which is running a new exhibition called Made of Earth, exploring the story of clay and ceramics and their impact through the ages. Jill, it's lovely to have you on the home show this morning. It's lovely to be here. Now, it's always fascinating how certain items were discovered or invented. In the case of ceramics and clay, I mean, it's probably one of the most ancient art forms. 
Yes, it is. Uh, I mean, actually, we think the original ceramics were uh, ritual-based. So the the kinds of objects that we have got in uh, the museum and, and are in this show um, are the oldest one is 4,000 years old. It's a little Hittite, um, so Anatolian civilization, clay figure on a horse. Um, so very much about uh, the representation of that society, which was very horse-driven, that kind of thing. The poster girl for the exhibition, she's, she's Aztec, so uh, pre-Columbian. We think, again, a semi-ritual piece used to have a hollow at the back of it, uh, which, had, which had rattles, um, little balls in it, which made it into a rattle, possibly used to ward off evil spirits, that kind of thing. So the, the, the sort of the pot form or the, the use of um, ceramics in domestic forms came in probably with the Neolithic uh, period where we were settling down, we were beginning to um, cook things, we were beginning to store things. So that, I think, is sort of the beginning of um, us using them very much for domestic use. And I suppose it is the fact that they are so multi-purposeful. Uh, I mean, they can be functional, as you say, they can have a religious or a, a ritualistic context, but also an art form. And do you think it is because of that, that once people learned how to form clay and how to create something lasting out of it, that that, that its kind of use then pervaded through whatever ancient societies were were here at the time. Yeah, I think I think that's true. There's a kind of combination of the practical. So we we were using them, as I said, to store food, but we were using them to have a cup to hold our food in, um, and then we started to I don't know. It seems to be like a bit a kind of human need to decorate. So the Greeks mm. were decorating them. Uh, we move through into the, 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 the medieval period um, where it was much more functional in form. And yet we were making, um, in the Renaissance period and later, um, chamber pots which were heavily decorated. So there's a, there's a wonderful piece in the um, exhibition which was, um, um, I'd say, a modern kind of shiwi, which was part of the Versailles court. <laughs> a shiwi? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> And that is highly decorated. It's a gold glaze, um, very green, uh, passed through because it's called a bordeloo. Um, it was passed through because uh, the women wanted to go and hear this uh, Franciscan uh, priest um, uh, called Bordeloo. Um, he went on for a very long time in his uh, sermons, so they would get stuck in their place. So their maids would be passing this thing backwards and forwards um, so they didn't have to lose their place. <laughs> Right. So I think we've got uh, we've got that kind of association with it, and then there's this this huge need to to, to decorate, um, and we have incredible instances of that with uh, like the willow pattern that we all walk past, mm. um, and the story of that, which is just a fable. It's probably Japanese, um, maybe uh, uh, gone across to Chinese in origin, um, but we've adopted it and we've we've made it into a semi-European story. And within the exhibition, we, we've actually turned that into a rather beautiful um, VR experience produced by NoHo, uh, which means that you enter into the story of the ceramics. But that need to decorate um, is, is 
seems to be paramount in, in humans. Talk to me a little bit about this. So I love the idea of the maids passing along this portaloo uh, along the road to these to these ladies. And isn't it a thing that as the craft uh, evolved and the science of it evolved, that ceramics became very much then a symbol of social status, like so much art and, and possibly the decorative piece is about that as much as anything else. I mean, it was expensive enough to do and it kind of showed off your possessions and your money. Yeah, yeah. So the the import of Chinese uh, porcelain, I think in the sort of 17th century was very important. That led to a desire to own those pieces uh, and were only owned by uh, the wealthy. It led to the potteries in Delft and then eventually the potteries um, in Ireland. So so kind of Dublin Delft were established by um, John Chambers in the 1730s and then run eventually by Henry Delmain. And then, of course, moving into uh, Belik, um, uh from out of uh, County Fermanagh. And that very much was about showing off, um, se- showing a status. So you mm. get the sweetmeat dishes, you get all of these things decorated in that style, which, which then moves into pieces which were not for practical purpose, or, or they could be. Um, so there's, we have a candelabra, for instance, from Belik which is a, a very ornate stag's head. Um, not very easy to move around, but it would have served the function of art, but it was very decorative mm-hmm. and very much stating we have wealth. Where did you begin when it came to sourcing the pieces for this, which, as you say, spanned thousands of years? H- how do you go about curating an exhibition like that, Jill? Yeah, they're all ours. Um, so the Hunt Museum has an incredible collection of ceramics going back to this very early Hittite piece right the way up into Irish contemporary ceramics. The idea was to pull those pieces out and to tell a story about why ceramics are so important to us and, and how we have developed as a civilization because mm. of it. Uh, where can people find out more about the exhibition, Jill? They can find out on the huntmuseum.com uh, website. It's on from now through till um, April um, and we'd love to see people there. Wonderful. All right. Well, Jill Cousins, Director and CEO of The Hunt down in Limerick, thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Home Show. Thank you very much. And after the break, how to make the most of tight spaces in the home and decorate them well. Well, we will have Denise O'Connor on to give us all of her top tips. So you can get your questions into us. Email your problems and queries to the home show at newstalk.com or text us at 53106. And we'll be back in a few moments. And you're very welcome back to the home show here on News Talk Radio. I'm Sinead Ryan. Uh, earlier in the show, we were talking with Siobhan Byrne-Lirat about all the haunted houses and uh, the haunted properties and those with disturbances uh, that she was telling us all about. It was very, very interesting. If you want to listen back to it, it is on the News Talk app, which is powered by Go Loud or wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, and it'll be up there and you can let us know your spooky goings on and where you have had ghostly experiences by texting us on five. 3106 for 30 cent or emailing us at the home show at newstalk.com. But we are joined once again by Denise O'Connor from Optimized Design uh, in studio uh, here to talk to us about a few things. But let me ask you first, Denise, any, uh, would you stay in a haunted house? Would you stay in a haunted castle? No, definitely not. No, no, no. I'd be far too terrified. 
far too terrified. Really? Yeah. Have, yeah. You, ha- have you ever had to refurbish something that maybe had a ghostly going on in it previously? I don't. Well, I mean, it's interesting, you know, when you start working on houses and especially houses people have bought, you do walk in and there, there are, you will uncover things and they are sort of ghostly, you know, sort of um, things from the past that you unearth and you do wonder about who lived there before, what's gone on. But uh, no spooky experiences, thank goodness. Though. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, exactly. Right, OK, <laughs> now you are here to talk to us about uh, something else, which I, I actually think we get a lot of queries on it because there's lots of people out there and we talk about like grand designs and big kitchens and all that kind of thing. But the truth is an awful lot of people live in a very small space, maybe sure. a one bedroom apartment or in a very small artisan cottage and space is at a premium mm-hmm. uh, and it can be difficult, I think, sometimes when you're going around furniture showrooms or to try and judge, you know, the space of things, the space furniture is going to occupy and and if it's going to, you know, appear cluttered in a very small space. So you're going to give us some tips and hints about how to maximise or, or decorate within something that isn't a great uh, area. Yeah, definitely. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think... You know, a lot of times I would meet people who feel they need more space. They're crying out for more space. And actually, when you look at what they have, they maybe have just too much stuff. So I would say start there. Start by sort of clearing out anything you don't need, anything you've collected. Just really give the space a good clear out. And then when you're down to what you absolutely need, it's being very careful when you are shopping. So like you mentioned, you go to showrooms, they're very large spaces. So measure measure, measure, measure and come home, map out any piece of furniture you're thinking of. You know, you can map it out with uh, newspaper, with masking tape. Just see how your other pieces are going to work because that's the worst thing you can do. It is such a good idea and it is a great recommendation because, you know, it's a bit like buying a Christmas tree in a forest. You know, it's very hard to judge the height and the size. Whereas if you're buying a sofa in a showroom, that's a vast warehouse and you have to bring it home to this kind of small room. So so laying it out on the floor and realising, actually, I'm going to have to skirt my way around this if I put a a coffee table there is is a good way of doing it. It really is. And And cheap. And cheap, exactly. And think about the circulation space. And then the other important thing to ask, and this happens a lot, say, with beds where you're trying to get them up the stairs, Talk to the people in the showroom about can these things come apart? Mm. Like maybe your front door is is narrower than most or the doors in your house are narrower than most. Like I have heard Mm. stories where people have had to take out windows to get pieces of furniture I'm reminded of that episode of Friends where Ross is trying to get the sofa (laughs) up around the stairs and they end up chopping it in half. Exactly. And and this is particularly the case in apartments, you know, with, with elevators and stuff like that. So yeah, just think about all the practicalities around... Okay, so measure out, uh, measure and measure again and map it out on the floor so that you're actually walking around the masking tape or the piece of newspaper or whatever it is. Okay, fantastic. Now, um, floor finishes. Is it the case that if you have the same floor throughout the ground floor, the whole space is going to look that bit bigger? Definitely. So that's a great trick. You know, I mean, I, I think one way to really break up a space and make it feel small is to have a different, like a different colour carpet in every single room. But weren't we advised to do that in these open plan things where you want kind of a seating area and a dining exactly. area and a so, cooking area? So it is the flip side of that. So that's where you have a very large space. 
you know, the, the thinking is how do you break that up? How do you make it feel more intimate, more cosy? So you would sort of try and differentiate between the spaces with, say, rugs, things like that. But where you, you've got a very compact space, like a lovely thing is, say, run your floor finish through from the hall right into the living space, the kitchen. It'll just feel more open. So your your eye isn't being broken by the changes in floor. So it's a really simple thing to do, but does make a huge difference. Now, of course, you know, you do to some extent want doors or screens or, you know, different rooms closed off. And I'm thinking perhaps in older, small houses mm-hmm. uh, that they would be smaller rooms and they are, they have kind of walls and doors. So what would you recommend so that it doesn't look too closed in? Yeah, well, one easy thing to do is maybe have glass doors or glass screens between rooms. So that's a lovely way, you know, it'll open the space up, but it'll also let natural light in because sometimes with smaller rooms, they can feel a bit dark, a bit pokey. So letting natural light in is a brilliant way to make it feel a little bit more spacious. Again, it's that illusion of your, yeah. your eye line going right through uh, to the back. Exactly. Uh, now, when it comes to the kitchen, um, you know, that kind of measurement thing you were talking about earlier, it's important to do that with yeah. the, all the chairs out, isn't yes, it? As if exactly. somebody is sitting in them. That's it. But benches and banquettes and that have become very popular as yeah, well. Yeah, and they're like they're a brilliant way to get more seating space. And especially, say, for kids, if you've little kids or, you know, they have a gang of kids coming home after school or something like that, a bench is brilliant. You can fit loads of them rather than <laughs> trying to look for chairs and things. Mm. And then the bench can be tucked away under the table. So it's not like chairs that are going to get in the way. So brilliant idea. Now, one of the things, the piece of furniture that takes up an enormous amount of room, just by default of it, are wardrobes. Yeah. So if you are tight on space, what do you recommend there? So I would say if your budget allows, go for built in. So something that's bespoke and like bespoke wardrobes, they're just great because they're going to maximise the space that you have. So even if it's an awkward space, a sloping ceiling, a little alcove, it just means you can get more bang for your book, really, and give you loads more storage space than you would get if you just went and bought something off the shelf. But the other thing about doing it bespoke is that you can fill the space floor to ceiling. So, you know, when you have a small space, especially if you've got low ceiling heights, what you don't want to do is break the line. Um, things like picture rails or stuff is just going to make bring that ceiling down. Um, so by building all the way up to the ceiling, you're just going to create the illusion of a higher floor to ceiling height. And where do you stand on the old slide robes, the mirrored front? I, I, like, is it kind of the 1980s are calling you back or is I it like, no, it's fab? Well, I think mirrors are brilliant. And I mean, if you have a small space, mirrors are a fabulous way to open it all up, brighten it up. They're just great. And they're very practical for a wardrobe too. The trouble with slide robes is that, or sliding wardrobe doors, you can only see one part at a time, you know, whereas with the other doors, you can just open them Fling all. them and open and yeah, see, yeah, see your little, entire range yeah, for so, the morning dress. So just a little more, more user friendly, I yeah. think. Yeah. OK, all yeah. right. Well, some good tips there on how to maximise small spaces, uh, Denise. And uh, thank you very much for that. Now, a small room, of course, is easier to heat. That's one of the advantages. And when it comes to savings on energy costs, well, we are here for them at the moment <laughs> on anything you have. Uh, yeah. So, Denise, I'm like a mad thing. I'm going around turning off the lights, the heating, watching my timings, making sure I'm doing nothing between five and seven except huddling in a jumper um, and, and doing the washing during the night. Am I doing it right now? Because you've come up with some myths 
that actually sound like they're a good idea, but may not Maybe be in not. reality. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I I read something very recently which was to um, insulate your radiators. And I thought, my goodness, that's bizarre. And the recommendation was to paint them. Now, this was in a very well-known publication. I thought, my God, that's like, you know, painting your radiators, not a good idea because often it will damage the warranty with the manufacturer. But also covering the radiator in any way is just a bad idea because you're blocking the heat from from coming out. Mm. So you don't really want to trap the heat in your radiator. The whole idea is that it goes out into the room yeah. and heats the room. Yeah. And why wouldn't you paint them? Because a lot that it was very popular for a while, with, you know, to paint them the same as the walls, like our previous conversation, sure. because it made yeah. the room look bigger and it disguised an ugly radiator. Yes. Well, I think if you're doing it for aesthetic reasons, there are paints that are suitable. But I suppose what the paint won't do is improve your energy mm. or save you mm. energy costs or anything like that. So just be mindful of, of um, particularly covering them if you think that maybe covering them up is a good idea. Radiator covers really aren't. If you're trying to save energy, you want to let the radiator do its job. Now, insulation, of mm. course, is key and mm. important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, making sure you have your, your hot water tank insulated and your attic and mm-hmm. all of that. But but you're not you're not kind of going for the full attic insulation. Well, exactly. So some people feel they need to insulate in between the rafters as well as sort of on the the floor level between the ceiling of the rooms below. But actually your attic is meant to be a cold space. So what you're trying to do by insulating the attic is stopping the heat from the house from escaping into the roof space above. Okay. So there's no need to insulate the rafters as long as that ceiling level is insulated properly. Okay. So really you're wasting money by insulating the rafters. Oh, I see what you mean because nobody's up, if you're not up there anyway. No, no, unless you're using it as a room, you know, something like that. But yeah, if it's just a storage space, uh, you know, a traditional attic space, there's absolutely no need to insulate between the rafters. Just put the hat on it by insulating the floor. Exactly. Okay, all right, okay. Now, turning off the radiators, I have a a room which I don't use. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like a guest room and it's it's not yeah. really slept in that often yeah. uh, and I have the radiators turned off completely because it just seems such a waste having yes, it on. Yeah, yeah. Is that the wrong thing to do? Yeah, I mean the trouble with having rooms that aren't heated at all there is a risk say whether you know that we're, we're facing into now it just means there's a risk of getting damp dampness in the room mould things like that mm. so by doing one thing where you think you're trying to save money, which you will, of course, by not turning on the radiators, you could be opening yourself up to, to other issues. So a better idea is just to have the room heated at a very low level for maybe an hour or so, you know, at a time. You don't have to heat it all the time, but just okay. just warm it up. Just every ticking now and then. over. Exactly. Right. Exactly. OK, good, yeah. good advice. Now, yeah. the other thing about the running the appliances at night now, I don't like running things like washing machines and dishwashers overnight because you're thinking like they could go on fire or something go wrong. Yeah. So you're trying to do it at a time when it's the evening maybe, but you're still alert if something were to go yes. wrong. Yeah, yeah. Is that the right way to do it? Definitely. Because okay. I've got something yeah. right. <laughs> no, there is a risk. And the other risk, you know, these these appliances, washing machines, dishwashers, they can flood. So just to be there um, is much better. But the night rate, if you do have a night meter, um, night rate does go into the morning. So if you're up early in the morning getting ready for work, that's a great time to run appliances just before you're leaving. So something like that. OK. Yeah. And while you're doing that, then you can curl up on the sofa with a nice cup of cocoa or 
cup of tea, a few hot drinks, that'll keep you warm. Well, exactly. But the only thing is, bear in mind, the kettle is probably one of the most expensive appliances to run. So anything that gives you instant hot water, like an electric shower, your electric kettle, they're super expensive to run. So a really good investment is something like a boiling water tap or a hot water tap. We all love them, the Quokar. They're fabulous. They're, I, they're very expensive to me. But I suppose there there are there are amazing ranges out there. So yeah. you can just for a couple of hundred euro get oh, really? a boiling water okay. tap. Yeah. So you know, Cougar would be the top range. Yeah. There's lots of, of uh, options out there. And you do away with the kettle altogether. I, is it is it yeah. a bit weird when you're in clients' houses, like not having a kettle on the I think it, it is a bit of an adjustment, um, you know, that ritual of putting the kettle on. But it's one they're wonderful for open plant spaces. They're not as noisy. You know, the kettle's pretty noisy. And also, yeah. like we were talking about, the compact spaces frees up counter space. So they're a really good investment. Right. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if I could do without the kettle. I mean, I like the idea of it, but I don't know. There's something ritualistic about filling the kettle is. and putting yeah. it on and waiting yeah. for it to boil, isn't yeah. it? All right. Well, listen, Denise O'Connor of Optimised Design, thanks a million for all of those hints and tips. You're My always pleasure. very knowledgeable. Uh, and that is all we have time for on the home show today. If there is some way you'd like to get involved in the show by maybe putting a guest our way or a topic you'd like to have us cover, uh, then please get in touch with us. You can text us at 53106 for 30 cents. You can email us throughout the week at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. You'll find me over on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. Uh, and indeed, don't forget to check out our podcast, which will go up on the News Talk website as we speak. Thanks to Mace O'Sullivan producing, Stephen McLoon and Peter Malloy on sound and Sinead Kyo. Up next is the Anton Savage Show. Have a brilliant weekend. And remember, we're here next Saturday at 8am.